Welcome to Demystify Magic with Molly and Madison. I'm Molly, a former skeptic turned full-time energy healer and teacher. And I'm Madison, a born and raised witch running my family's crystal shop. And we're here to explore all things woo through the lens of both science and spirituality so that you can find the moments of magic in your everyday life and create an intentional spiritual practice. So if that's what you're into, find a cozy spot, take a deep breath, and let's demystify some magic. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the pod. How are you, Molly? Hello, I am doing. How are you doing? Yep, I'm also doing. (laughs) (laughs) At least we're honest. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Listen, if there's one thing we're going to tell you, it's the truth. (laughs) I am so excited for today, mostly because when we outlined this episode, I realized that this is going to be another fun time where I get to learn right alongside you guys. So we are in part two of our five-part series on the difference between anxiety and intuition and how to strengthen your intuition and calm and quiet that anxiety. So we're going to talk about the science of anxiety, physiologically, what that feels like in your body, how to tell the difference from intuition, and real-life practices for how you can quiet that anxiety so you can start to listen to the intuition in your body and really get a concrete feel on the difference. Yeah. And also like the science behind intuition, because a lot of times we think it's like I don't know. I feel like some people think it's like this woo concept, this Mm -hmm. intangible concept, but there is science behind it and we are going to geek out about it. But first, Madison, what is your magic moment of the week? Okay. My magic moment is not going to sound very magic, but you have to just, you have to just stay on the ride with me. Okay. Trust the process. This magic moment starts months ago. This magic moment has been setting itself up for quite some time. For context, I have these glasses. I've worn the same glasses for years. I love these glasses. I have two pairs, one black pair, one brown pair. I wore the black pair for a long, long time. A few months ago, I had the thought to myself that I should probably go to the eye doctor, that it was getting to be that time. I didn't know how long it had been, but I was starting to notice that my prescription maybe wasn't quite right. Two days later, I lost that black pair of glasses. So I committed to not thinking about the eye doctor. (laughs) I knew what the universe was telling me and I was not willing to listen. And so I was like, okay, we'll just put the, we'll we'll pull out the brown pair and we'll stop thinking about the eye doctor. Well, I mostly forgot about that until probably three or four days ago when I thought to myself, you know, my prescription's just not hitting like it usually does. I should go take a look at going to the eye doctor. This time I looked up in my previous orders, what my frames are called mm-hmm. and learned that Warby Parker no longer makes them. Dun, dun, dun. I know, a tragedy. Real tragedy had struck me in that moment. And so I said, okay, <laughs> never mind. I'll deal with this another day because I'm pretty sure. So these are Warby Parker frames. And I could be wrong about this. This could be an old policy, but they won't replace frames in glasses. Mm, okay. Or somebody told me that once in a Warby Parker store. So if that was a lie, please let me know. But so I was like, okay, fine. I just won't go to the, to the eye doctor. This past Friday, I go to get a haircut. And we've reached the end of the haircut. She styled my hair. It looks cute. I love it. And I go to put my glasses on <laughs> to complete the look. I clean them off first, just giving them just a simple wipe down. And they snap <laughs> in half in my hands in front of my no. poor hairstylist. My poor, poor hairstylist who is watching me have the full, like all five stages of grief in like two minutes. (laughs) And she goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like she's trying to figure out what's happened. I'm trying to figure out what's happened. These are sturdy, nice glasses. And they just snapped in (laughs) half right on the bridge. And so I have to drive home with no glasses. (laughs) And what makes this a magic moment is nothing that actually happened. <laughs> it is the moment of growth that I put together of myself looking back on me a few months ago when I lost my black glasses, where I was wrecked for days about losing these glasses, mm-hmm. like crying, screaming, throwing up. Whereas today or last Friday, my glasses snapped in half. <laughs> and within 30 minutes, I had an eye appointment. I had a new pair of backup glasses. These are super glued together on my face right now. <laughs> and 100% the difference is the way I look at it mm-hmm. and the way I 
experience signs in the way I experience the universe trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. Whereas, again, my hairstylist, who's looking at me, my glasses have just broken in my hands. I go through the full, you know, five stages of grief, but I reach acceptance and I'm like, I should have listened and gone to the eye doctor two months ago. (laughs) Yeah. And something that destroyed me. This is also where we learned that my glasses are a big part of my identity. (laughs) (laughs) Something that destroyed me two months ago. Last week, I was just like, you know, the universe is trying to tell me something. There's something in that Warby Parker Mm -hmm. tomorrow when I go have my appointment. There's something that is for me in that Warby Parker. And I don't know what it is, but I can't wait to find out. Yeah, I love that. I love like signs from the universe. I also think like that's such a cool like embodiment of what we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Cliffhanger, but I might use it as an example. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. Tell me your magic moment. Mine is similar in like signs and synchronicities and like, you know, a little bit of a to be continued at the end of it. I'm a big believer that there's like coincidences are just like breadcrumbs leading you on a path. Like anytime I've ever experienced what I think is a coincidence, when I zoom out and look at that experience, it was sort of like the start of a path or start of a journey for me that led me somewhere that I ultimately wanted to go. And so I have, I'm following breadcrumbs right now. So I, after we recorded our solstice episode, I was like, I've been experiencing some, some tummy issues, you know, just, just a gal with a sensitive tum tum. Mm -hmm. And I, after we recorded the solstice episode, I was reminded of like my experience with acupuncture many, many, many years ago. And I was like, well, maybe I should go back to that. So I Googled just like acupuncture near me and signed up for a consultation at the first one at the top of the Goog page. And they sent me an email with like the address and directions and whatever. And so the day of my appointment, I was like, okay, let me find out where this place is. Because I knew it was in town, but didn't know quite where. And I'm reading through the email. I'm like, that address sounds familiar. And that, those directions sound familiar. I was like, it can't be. It can't be. So I pull it up on Google Maps and I'm like, holy shit. The acupuncture place is in the same building that I used to do Reiki sessions. <gasps> yeah. Like the <laughs> uh, prior to the pandemic, I taught at a, a yoga studio that just before the world shut down had moved to a new brand new building. And across the hall, I rented space from a massage therapist to do. Reiki sessions in her room, days that I was teaching or whatever. And then through the pandemic, we still continued to use the space to record a lot of like Crystal Crash course was recorded in there. My Intro to Chakras course was recorded in there. And really like the the foundation of what my business has become today was recorded within those walls. And I just remember like being like, what the hell are the odds? And then I walked in and it, the building has like this very distinctive smell. It's not like a bad smell, but it's not like, it's just like you know how like buildings, newer yeah. buildings have a smell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like walked in and that smell was there, even though I haven't been in there for like two years. And I was just like, oh, just like brought back. I was like, oh, man, I love this space. Just something about the vibe in here. So I don't know where that's taking me, but it was just such like a cool reminder of like, I don't know, just kind of like the journey, like you said, like growth. Like the last time I was in that building, I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what my life is happening. And and now I feel like a lot of that has... uh has settled a bit so yeah that's so fun I love moments like that especially when you don't know that they're gonna happen Mm-hmm. you know I think there are a lot of times that you know you're gonna be in a space that you haven't been in a long time and that is an interesting experience experiencing the lead up and like that kind of anticipation and those kinds of thoughts and what that brings up but having it kind of sprung on you yeah is really really interesting to see like what kind of pops up yeah, it was fun. It was a cool space. I'm excited to see where that takes you. I know, right? <laughs> All right, let's dive into it. So let's talk about this anxiety thing. And I want to just preface by saying that like, we neither of us are psychiatrists, neither of us are therapists. So we also say say this with so much love and care that like, if you have anxiety, that you are finding it difficult to manage on your own, please, please, please seek professional care and support because anxiety is one of those things that when it's a low level anxiety it's annoying it gets in the way of your life gets in the way of your intuition but there are tools and practices you can do on your own to manage it there are times when anxiety becomes 
too much for us to handle on our own. And those are the times that you want to seek support. And there's no shame in that. So we just want to put that out there as like a baseline, you know, take what resonates from this, but please, please, please continue doing the practices, continue seeking the care that is supportive to you when you experience anxiety, if you are someone who is an anxious person. Yes. We talk a lot about the idea of a spiritual toolbox, Mm -hmm. things that we're going to talk about, these practices that we're going to go over, they are tools in the toolbox. They're not the toolbox itself. And the spiritual toolbox sits next to or sits inside a larger toolbox of all coping skills. Yeah. You know? Yep. So we're never, ever saying that the practices that we're going to outline or talk about are the way. Yeah. They're a way. They're something to take on your way. Mm -hmm. Let's geek out a little bit about what is happening when we actually experience anxiety. And I find this to be so helpful. This is something I teach in all of my Reiki trainings. And I hear over and over again from people that understanding this helps them kind of feel more in control, even just by understanding what's happening, feel more in control of that anxious tendency. And really the first step to managing anxiety is the awareness of it because it can kind of take us for a ride. We've talked about before in our meditation with ADHD episode about the man on the horse, right? Running through town, someone asks, hey, where are you going? He says, ask the horse. If you don't remember that, go back and listen to the episode. It's pretty good. (laughs) And anxiety is kind of the same way. It can be this horse that just takes us for a ride. So understanding what's happening in the body and in the mind can be really helpful to start to recognize that, recognize the signs before they kind of carry you away. So we've talked about before this idea of the tiger brain. Your brain, its number one job is to keep you alive. That's all it cares about. And it's really, really good at its job because at any given time, there's like 73 trillion things that could go wrong and take you out at any moment. And your brain is really good at adapting to those 73 trillion things so that you stay alive. And I always like to start with that because we can get really frustrated with our brains, especially when we experience anxiety and we're aware of the anxiety and we can't change the anxiety (laughs) at times. We can get really frustrated at our brains and wonder like, why is my brain doing this? Or why is my brain so annoying? Or like, oh, why can't I just like be calm? But in reality, it's your brain is extremely compassionate to you. It just wants to take care of you. It just wants to protect you. It just wants to keep you alive. And so starting with that lens of like compassion towards the wiring of your anxiety is will help you kind of like create some separation from it so that you don't feel so kind of like wrapped up in the muck of it, you know? Yeah, I like to envision that part of my brain in the way of, (laughs) sorry if you're listening, but my grandmother I don't know if my grandma listens to podcasts, Um, but when I was younger, I try to, I guess what I'm saying is I try to have the same level of like loving compassion for my brain in the ways that it's trying to keep me safe for the way that my grandmother worried about me when I was a kid. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Like my, and you could relate this to like anyone who loves you very much, but I have these very distinct memories from when I was a kid of my grandma, like asking me if I looked both ways before I crossed the street every day Mm -hmm. and telling me being like you don't text while you're walking on the sidewalk do you like yeah (laughs) because I heard a story of a girl who a car came off the side of the road you know just whatever Mm -hmm. always really really worried about me and I I was like maybe like 12 or 13 looking at my grandma being like you know you sweet sweet woman who loves you so much and cares so much about me that you're like thinking about this all the time I try to keep that attitude towards my tiger brain. Yeah. Of like, it's just my tittering grandmother, like trying so hard to keep me on the sidewalk. (laughs) I love that. That's so cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and truly, it's like your brain is wired to worry. It's wired to think of the negative things first. So like if I were standing in a room talking on stage in front of a thousand people and 999 of them were like smiling and engaged and one person in the back was looking at me side-eyed, my brain would zoom in on that one person because in my brain, that person is a threat. Your brain really doesn't distinguish like life-threatening threats and just like 
mundane everyday threats. Your brain doesn't know the difference between one person side-eyeing you in a room full of a thousand people and a tiger chasing you. It just assumes everything is a tiger because that's what's going to keep you alive, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like it would rather assume something is a tiger and be wrong than not assume something's a tiger and be wrong. One of those things is going to uh, affect your survival more than the other. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like how your brain is wired. And you have this part of your brain wired towards negativity. It's got a negativity bias to it, which means you could get, you know, a hundred positive comments on your Instagram and one negative one. And your brain is going to hone in on that negative comment because the positive comments are not a threat to your survival. So understanding that is key. Understanding that is why we tend to loop on an anxious thought because that anxious thought is a tiger to your brain. That anxious thought becomes a threat to your survival. And whenever there's a threat to your survival, whether it's real or perceived threat, it becomes this domino effect in the body of and the mind that leads towards sort of pulling all of your resources towards keeping you alive, towards fighting the tiger, fleeing from the tiger, freezing or trying to appease the tiger essentially Mm -hmm. and that's also why this is a constant and consistent practice this Mm -hmm. isn't just someday you wake up and you've become a quote-unquote positive person who isn't impacted by negative comments and doesn't look at the person giving you side eye and feel that way Mm -hmm. it's constantly reminding yourself that this is how your brain is wired because you're not just going to, at the flip of a switch, rewire your brain. That's millions of years of evolution, right? Yeah. And speaking of flipping switches, there is kind of a switch that flips between the tiger brain and sort of your, your resting state of your brain. And depending on your history, the things you've experienced, the wiring of your brain, that switch can be a little bit more prone to being in in tiger mode. So I I tend to describe it as like you could have a switch between resting and survival mode, or you could have more of a mousetrap where it's like every little thing you're kind of hypervigilant to and your brain just shifts into survival mode really easily. And with practice, you can turn that mousetrap back into a switch, but it does take time. And again, the first step is recognizing it. So When you're in that survival mode, when your brain thinks you're being chased by a tiger, it's like all of your resources go towards keeping you alive. So your memory, your concentration, your focus are impaired. Your decision-making ability is impaired. Your ability to see things clearly is impaired. So you kind of get tunnel vision on this thing. Like this is is the thing that I'm anxious about. This is the only way it's going to be. You can't really see other options. Your ability to be creative, to empathize with others shuts down. Your digestion slows down. Your mouth literally creates less saliva, so you don't break down food as well. It's one of the reasons why there's a link between chronic stress and IBS. You also experience more pain in the body. Your pain receptors are effective. There's more inflammation, more tension. Just generally, all of the processes that your body does that are not related to survival go offline. And so we can feel this in the body, right? So if you think about when you're when you experience anxiety, it's like the stomach tightens, the chest tightens, our breath comes up into our throat rather than down in the abdomen, the heartbeat starts to race, right? You might get flush in the face. It's like your body is preparing to essentially fight for its life. It doesn't know that, you know, your Wi-Fi buffering for just a little bit too long and worrying about missing an important meeting, it doesn't know that's not a tiger. It just prepares you as if it is because that's what's going to keep you the safest, according to the wiring of your brain. So yeah, so that is why when it comes to trying to discern your intuition, if your brain thinks you're being chased by a tiger, you cannot tap into that intuition because you literally get hyper-focused on the worry, hyper-focused on the what if this happens, right? We talked about in the last episode kind of like that looping thought. And also 
when we are in that anxious state, all of your energy goes up into your head, right? That thinking, that analyzing, that planning that needs to get done to get out of this situation that is making you anxious or to resolve the worry that is looping in your mind. Whereas intuition lives in your body. It lives in the present moment. And so it's actually very difficult to come into the body if we are in that survival mode, in that tiger mode. So the first thing that needs to happen in order to tap into your intuition is to recognize and reassure that tiger brain and to really help your brain see that like, I'm actually okay. There's no tiger here. Yes, this is like, you know, a thing that I need to deal with or a worry that is, you know, needing to be resolved, but it's not an active threat to my safety right now. And as soon as your brain gets that message, it's like that domino effect becomes reversed. You can shift into that that resting state, which is when your focus, your decision making, your logical thinking, your empathy, your creative thinking, all of that can come back online. But until you flip that switch back, it's very, very difficult to see beyond that anxiety or see beyond that worry. Something I think is so interesting that I hadn't thought about until you verbalized it is that idea of really like easing the sensitivity on that switch. I think that for Mm -hmm. me for a long time, the goal was to eliminate that part of my brain and become a purely a person who was never in survival mode. I didn't know, I didn't have the language for what was happening, but especially Mm -hmm. like we talked about last episode with there being a lot of shame around that anxiety. The idea that there's something wrong with that response. I always thought that the end goal was like to eliminate that rather than to have a goal. Like that feels just like such a more concrete, reasonable, achievable goal. Yeah. And you don't actually want to eliminate it because we need the survival Mm -hmm. response. Yeah. The survival response is necessary to get you out of life-threatening situations. It's what stops you from walking in front of cars, trains, and buses. It's also what Mm -hmm. motivates you and drives you to achieve, right? Like if we did not have the survival response, we would not feel motivation to go after our goals and we would not like level up in our life or, you know, our career or whatever your goals are. And so it's a very necessary part of our body, our mind, our lives, everything. It's just, it was designed for short-term activation. So a tiger's chasing you, I get away, I shake it off, I go back into resting. It's just the way that our lives are set up now, more and more we experience things that shift us into survival all day, every day, that we get kind of locked in it. And our like neutral state that we are in most of the time becomes survival rather than resting. And so it's it's this opportunity to renegotiate that relationship with our survival response so that it doesn't take over your life and so that you have some agency over it. Because if you live from the state of survival, it's like not only does it start to cause damage to your physical body, but it's like it becomes very difficult to make progress in any part of your life because you're always like focused in on the thing that you're worried about right now and you can't really think beyond that. Yeah, and I think tying it into, we're going to talk a little bit more about intuition later. It becomes easier to get comfortable identifying the differences when you remove that level of it shouldn't be this way. Like when you understand and accept it as like a necessary part of life and kind of have that Mm -hmm. respect for it and that sympathy, you see it like like your anxious grandma (laughs) rather than like this active force working against you. I think coming at it from that neutral place is really also where you can identify that difference between anxiety and intuition and make peace with both of them as parts of life. Yeah. I always like to think of it as like anxiety is information. Mm -hmm. So it's like if I'm worried about something, if I'm stuck on something and I'm really worried about it, it's never Mm -hmm. random. There's always a reason, whether it's something happening now or something that happened in the past. It's an opportunity to 
really look at that, really dive into it. I kind of pretend I'm like a detective, just being like, oh, what mm-hmm. are the clues that led my brain to believe that this yeah. email I just received was necessary for the fight <laughs> response, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's such a great point. Like just because it's not intuition doesn't mean it's useless. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot to be learned from anxiety and there's a lot to be learned from what specifically your brain perceives as a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So intuition on the flip side is it can show up in a lot of different ways. We're going to talk about in the next episode some of the clairs, which are ways that intuition shows up. Maybe you've heard of like clairvoyance, clairsentience. If you haven't, Mm -hmm. we're diving in next week. So don't worry about that. But we want to just get in broad strokes that intuition does not show up just one way to everyone. I hear this a lot from my Reiki training students. They'll be like, oh, I'm not getting any intuitive information in my Reiki practice and I want to know how to strengthen that. And so I always ask them like, okay, what what are you feeling? What is your experience in your practice? And they'll be like, well, I'm not getting any intuitive messages, but I am seeing like colors and I saw these symbols and these visuals. And so that's a form of intuition. Right. We can see visuals. Maybe you have dreams. Maybe you when you kind of have a dreamy moment where you kind of like see a scenario play out in your mind. Maybe you see colors, images, shapes. Sometimes it can show up more in the body. So feeling tension when you're in a certain place or feeling more light and expansive in places can be signs of intuition. It could sometimes show up as just like a knowing. Like a lot of times I I didn't realize this was intuition, Madison. Maybe you, maybe you don't know either, but I recently learned this was I always talk about when I'm doing this podcast or whenever I'm leading trainings or guiding meditations or working with people one-on-one, I kind of like have a, I, I have like a loose plan, but the words and the sentence structure and the way the information flows through is always just like comes from somewhere else. It just like moves through me. And I don't even know what I'm saying half the time. Like whenever I whenever I make an analogy, that is not coming from my brain. That is coming from somewhere else and just like moving through me. <laughs> and that that is a form of intuition, that like inner knowing of just like words mm-hmm. flow through you, information flow through you. You just kind of like know things or know what to say next. Mm-hmm. And that's also like a kind of trust mm-hmm. in your intuition that is developed. Like if you looked at our outlines for this podcast it's a mess (laughs) and then listened to the podcast they are such wildly different bodies of work (laughs) and so I 100% understand what you mean by that because most weeks I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth and it is a form of intuition it's also a form of trust of intuition to know that you'll be able to do it yeah that I think is interesting. So I think that's why it's a less commonly known and talked about form of intuition because that base level of trust has to be there for it to show up. Yeah. And next week when we talk about the different forms of intuition and the different clairs, we'll talk about how to develop that trust. If you're sitting here and you're like, I want to do that, whether it's Mm -hmm. for a podcast or something else. But the thing that I want to tap into that I feel like a lot of us can relate to is this gut feeling. Right? Like whether you are in the witchy realm of things or you're not, a lot of us have said before, I just like have a gut feeling about this. Right? Yeah, I hear that most often from people. I notice it a lot more now who do not identify with spirituality at all. Mm-hmm. I hear it across all facets of the human experience. I hear it from atheists, yeah, people who believe in absolutely nothing that they have a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. I hear it from Christians. I hear it from all kinds of people who I don't know what they believe. People, even people who come into the store and fully believe that we are full of shit. Yeah, yeah. I will hear them in our conversations talk about having a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's such a fun place to start. Yeah. It's such a good baseline because it's such a universal experience. And I love the gut feeling because for me, it's this bridge between the woo and the science Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the woo we could talk about how like 
you know, energetically, we have a we have like hunches about things and information that just comes in energetically and we're always like perceiving energy around us and that could be the cause of the gut feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a science behind it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> so to understand the science behind the gut feeling, we have to understand the vagus nerve. Madison, how familiar are you with the vagus nerve? I like maybe many of you listening, saw the trend on TikTok to ice your vagus nerve Mm -hmm. to ease anxiety. So I went through maybe a two-week phase of icing my vagus nerve and then forgot about it. (laughs) Um, I know absolutely nothing about how or why that's helpful or what the vagus nerve is outside of the very brief explanation that you gave me. So that I would be prepared for this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Great, great, great. So the vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve in the body. It's sometimes called the wandering nerve because it starts at like the base of the skull kind of area and it moves all the way down through the torso and connects with your digestive organs. So one of its jobs is to communicate information from the body to the brain in the brain to the body, but mostly from the body to the brain. It also has a key role in that switch we were talking about between the survival response and the resting response of your nervous system. And so it really is this bridge between your anxiety and your intuition. Remember when we talked about when you feel anxious, what do you feel first, right? The stomach tightens, your breath goes up into your chest. Both of those things affect the vagus nerve and are affected by the vagus nerve. So when our vagus nerve is functioning well, right, we have, we have a strong vagus nerve that allows us to kind of soften that, that switch between survival and the resting response, which then helps us decrease anxiety and tap into intuition. And one of the ways that we can determine the strength of the vagus nerve is through what's called vagal tone, which basically looks at the relationship between your heart rate and your breath rate. So when you inhale, naturally, your heart rate starts to quicken. And when you exhale, naturally, your heart rate decreases. And so it's looking at that relationship. So strengthening that vagal tone can then help to decrease anxiety in the body. And remember, I said that it's a nerve that goes all the way down to your stomach. So those gut feelings are communicated through your vagus nerve. That is so wild to me. I think this is so fun specifically for us to talk about as two people with tummy problems. (laughs) And anxiety. (laughs) And anxiety, because that is how it makes the most sense to me. Mm -hmm. I do have a question though. Okay. We might get to this later. So if we are going to get to this later, let me know. But how do you strengthen a nerve? Like you say when you have a strong vagus nerve. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get okay, there. Okay, great, 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 great. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. I just imagine myself like working out my vagus nerve. No. <laughs> and I don't no. know how to do that. So I'll explain it to you. And then when we get into the practices, I'll, I'll talk more about it. But okay. um, what, because vagal tone is connected with your breath to heart rate rhythms, using your breath is a way of strengthening that vagal tone. In particular, mindful breathing or breath that gets down into the abdomen rather than the shallow kind of anxious breath. Oh, okay. This is so interesting. We've yeah. talked on this podcast before about how I struggle. This is also why I was very excited about to talk about the vagus nerve because I don't know a lot about it. But all I really got before we started recording is that it's the bridge between mind and body. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot on here about how I struggle to get in my body. Mm -hmm. I also feel like I have very small lungs. This is something I've discussed. I don't think I've told you about it. Those breathing, you know, on like on TikTok or on Instagram, there will be those like repeating videos that'll be like, inhale for eight seconds, exhale for eight seconds, hold for five, whatever. I can't do those. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like I can't inhale for eight seconds and then hold for five. Mm-mm. I can inhale for maybe five seconds. Okay, here's the thing. Is, is that I'll, my weak vagus nerve? No, no, no. So, okay. All right. We're going to go okay. down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I promise I'll tie it okay, in at the so end. so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> so if, if that is, if you're scrolling on social media, that is not your resting response. 
most of the time. Most of the time scrolling social media is activating because you're just getting so much content and like you never know what the content's going to be, right? Especially on TikTok, you could see like a Taylor Swift video and then you could see like a video about like a building being burned to burned down. Like you don't know what's coming. And so that can actually activate your nervous system in that way. And so when you hit one, when you hit a checkpoint that's like breathe in for eight, your breath is shallow. So it's like it the analogy that's coming to me is like if you wanted to go out to get a hot dog, but you tr- instead, <laughs> again, these are channeled. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you wanted to eat one hot dog, but you instead ended up in a hot dog eating contest. And you were like, why can't I eat eight hot dogs? <laughs> it's like you got to prepare for it. Right. So it's like, oh, my God, if you- I wish everyone could see my face right now. I'm flabbergasted. So it's like most of the time, like here's here's a fun thing that everyone can do. Next time you're scrolling on social media, just count how long your inhale is, your natural inhale and how long your natural exhale is. I guarantee you it's nowhere close to eight breaths or eight seconds rather. And so when you hit that checkpoint, that's eight seconds. All of a sudden you're like, <gasps> <sighs> oh my god you know and so your body is like what is going on and again your inhale is actually like it quickens your heart rate it's actually more tied to that sympathetic response that survival response and your exhale is tied to that relaxation response so instead of doing a really long inhale do a short inhale and lengthen the exhale without forcing mm. and slowly start to lengthen that exhale that's going to bring you more into that that resting response than taking a really long inhale and trying to hold your breath and like, oh, like really struggling with it. Mm-hmm. This knowledge is life changing for me. But even when they have you do that, like in a yoga class, I can't hold, I can't inhale the whole time. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, that's okay. I would say like, okay, the, <laughs> that's fine. You're fine. Yeah. The relationship between your inhale and exhale is more important than the length of your inhale and exhale. Okay. So like if you were taking like a, a five second inhale and you couldn't do longer than a two second exhale, I'd be like, mm, let's let's work on lengthening that. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, like everyone breathes at a different rate. And so like so many things are factored into that. I wouldn't like qualify your vagus nerve based on like how long you can inhale. Great. I was very worried for a second that you were going to be like, yeah, your vagus nerve is fucked. <laughs> you got to work on that. No, no, no. And so, yeah, let's dive into some practices that you can use to decrease your anxiety, tap into your intuition. I'll let you know which ones are are also helpful for the vagus nerve, but I would say like anything that brings you into your body and slows your breath down into your body, like brings your breath out of your chest into your abdomen is going to be helpful to, for the vagus nerve, which all of these things help you to do. So first one is, as you mentioned, ice. What was your experience? Do you remember of icing your vagus nerve? Which was like on the chest, right? They had you put it on the chest. Yes. I think like I also was not maybe doing it the best. Like it's me laying with a bag of pizza rolls on my chest. You know, (laughs) like it's not. (laughs) I I don't think that I was like really participating in the practice in like a in a way. And so I think I mostly felt silly, which does help, (laughs) which helped my anxiety feeling silly. Mm -hmm. I would say like it helped short term totally. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I only did it for really like two weeks. I don't remember it having an effect that inspired me enough to continue to do it. Mostly, Mm -hmm. I think, because I feel uncomfortable in the cold. Yeah. Yeah. You Floridians. Uh Uncomfortable in the cold. I can't handle it. My sensitive, sensitive skin. Yeah. I don't know too much about like long-term effects of cold, but I was always taught the cold could be a way of flipping that switch for you or helping Mm -hmm. to like flip that switch out of survival. So one thing that I learned back when I was an advocate that I used to um, share with survivors when they were like about to go into um, court and and face their abuser was to uh, run your wrists under cold, cold, cold water. This does the same thing as splashing yourself with cold water in the face. It's just like a little bit easier to do in public. Mm -hmm. So cold is one way of stimulating the vagus nerve. So you can hold an ice cube is another one that people use. Placing ice on the chest or again, running the wrists under cold water can help flip that switch when you're feeling anxious and 
Or if you're trying to discern if what you're feeling is like anxiety or intuition, this could be a really good one is like hold an ice cube or run your wrist under cold water. And then after a few minutes, check in, see how you feel. I think the cold water on wrists would be something that would be more achievable for me. Mm-hmm. I think that or like getting a nicer ice pack <laughs> for yeah. my Vegas nerve icing. The pizza rolls are like not a great long term yeah. You know, it's not super inspiring to be like, oh, I've got some frozen peas in there. I can use yeah. that or whatever. Yeah. Something I've done, too, is like if you're out at a restaurant and you feel yourself getting anxious, is just put your hand around your glass. It's mm. like, no, like if you can't get up to leave. I know like, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, what are some things I can do in the moment that like no one has to know about? Um, that's a really good one. If you're like out somewhere and you have a cold drink, just put your hand around the glass and just focus on that cold sensation yeah that's a really great idea i'll be taking that take it it's yours (laughs) next is like a classic mental health you'll hear it a hundred times movement is super helpful in flipping that switch back down i the first thing that i always think of is like were you ever did you ever had a teacher who would like make you get up and like wiggle or like Mm -hmm. shake like shake it out the shake it out yeah type thing that's immediately what I think of when I think about movement for decrease of anxiety is like energy builds up Mm -hmm. in your body and having like a physical tangible way and visualization helps here as well like imagining the energy being like flicked off like flicking your fingers that's something Mm -hmm. that you do in Reiki training you teach people to do after Mm -hmm. A session is flicking energy off of your fingers. It can be as small as that. It can be as large as, you know, running a 5K. Yeah. Yeah. Any kind of movement that feels good to your body is a way to kind of release that anxious energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially when we think about like the wiring of the brain in this survival response, think about like if uh if an antelope was being chased by a lion right, and say they like finally got away from the lion, the first thing they would do is shake, right? Mm -hmm. Dogs, they're play fighting. When they're done playing, they shake. Mm -hmm. And that's our wiring too, is to literally like shake it off. Shake it off, shake it off. Mm -hmm. Yes, Taylor wrote a whole song about it. (laughs) Taylor wrote a whole song about it. If you haven't heard it, it's pretty good. But that's our wiring too. And a lot of times we're like, I can't shake it off. But when you shake... You know, it doesn't have to be like flailing around. You shake when you dance, right? Mm -hmm. Shake when you run, shake when you walk. Um, That movement really helps to dispel that that pent up survival response. I wonder if that's something that we would do if we hadn't like societally trained ourselves that like sudden movement like that is weird. You know, I wonder if like a million years ago we had an argument with someone and then we walked away and we shook. Yeah, it actually is. I, I went to a training eons ago um, with this, I, I can't even remember who it was, but they were talking about the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is kind of like our social conscience. It's like our logic and reasoning is one of the reasons why we don't shake after things. Because like, you know, you could have a tough meeting with your boss and your body is like craving you to go in the hallway and do a bunch of push-ups to release that energy. Mm-hmm. But our brain is like, no, that would be weird. So yeah. that's like, actually, it's like just the evolution of our brain and and social, I don't know, like social constructs, the reason why we don't do it. But I think we should get back to it personally. I agree. It's interesting how we can evolve in a way that actually works against us in a way. I mean, in some ways, right? Like it works, not to dive too deep into it, but like it works <laughs> against us in that facet, but like, you know. But also works for us in a social way. Yeah, like, in a social way. The nuance of that is interesting. You know, we could have a conversation about like capitalism and like, mm-hmm. you know, you're only productive when you're, you know, a cog in the machine. For another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, the third one is EFT tapping. Which, if you're not familiar, is basically um, using your fingers to lightly tap on different acupressure points. Usually it's in the face and the head and the chest. There's a couple other ones, depending on like who you work with. So this is one that you could do proactively. Like if there's something you're really anxious about, just go on YouTube. And I mean, 
Brad Yates is a guy who does has done tapping for years on YouTube and he has like a video for everything. So if you're like worried about money, just look up like Brad Yates money and <laughs> you'll find a tapping video. Um, there's a lot of really good ones in there. But if you've never tried it before, it's it's interesting. I wouldn't say it's like my absolute favorite, but it's definitely one that I have found to be helpful in when I'm worried about like very specific things and tap on very specific things to release them. Tapping is like the one I say the one, one of the more popular healing modalities that I haven't touched at all. Oh, really? I would say I've kind of dipped my toes in like all of the major, most common, most talked about healing modalities. Tapping is the one that I've just never taken the plunge on. So maybe it's time. It's time. It's time. So next is something that we touched on a little bit before. Uh, We gave you a teaser with my... (laughs) With my social media scrolling epiphany that I had, but breath work. Mm -hmm. Breath, like Molly said earlier, is going to be the thing that strengthens that vagus nerve and strengthens that bridge, kind of builds that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say too, like the breath work could be anything. The biggest thing with breath work is not to stress yourself out more. A lot of times we get, just like you said, Madison, kind of in this comparison of like, why can't I breathe in for eight counts? It's like, it's okay. <laughs> if you've had this fear or this stressor around your breath, please let me know because I've actually had the conversation with multiple people that I think that I have smaller lungs than others because of, because of these social media videos. I mean, you might. It might. It's also like a training thing. You know, if you're not used to breathing in that way, you can it's like it's a muscle. So, mm-hmm. but I would say as far as breath work goes, aiming for equal breath so if you breathe in for a count of three, breathe out for a count of three, you could do that or lengthening the exhale to be longer than the inhale. When we do that, it helps signal to the brain to shift into that resting response. So even if you have a one second inhale and a two second exhale, you know, to start and slowly start to build those up so that the exhales at least slightly longer than the inhale is one really good way uh, to help signal that. One thing that I find to be helpful, especially when I'm in a time of anxiety trying to do breath work, is to place my hands on my abdomen and feel the breath underneath the hands. Because when we are in that state of anxiety, when a tiger is chasing us, your breath goes up into your chest. And so just the simple act of placing your hands there helps bring your attention there, brings your energy there, makes it a little bit easier to focus on that. Yeah, kind of like easing that breath out of the chest and into the stomach, Mm -hmm. encouraging yourself out of that response, kind of targeting the physical, I don't want to say symptoms, but that symptoms feels like the best word in this moment, the physical symptoms of anxiety Mm -hmm. starting in the body instead of in the brain. I think that's a big one for me too. Again, like we've talked about this, I live in my brain. And so I will often try to logic myself out of it. (laughs) Yeah. And so focusing and starting in the body, I think, is a great way for people who feel that way mm-hmm. to kind of regain that control. Yeah, it's going to make it easier to logic your way out of it because remember, when you're in survival mode, when your brain thinks you're chased by a tiger, when you're experiencing that anxiety, your ability to logically reason goes offline. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another way to do that is through meditation. If you want to stay in your brain. <laughs> for those who want to stay in their brain i would argue meditation is not in your brain really yeah because like we talked about in the i think it was the meditation hex for adhd brain episode when you're meditating you're in the present moment and the present moment doesn't it doesn't live in your brain it lives in your body and so meditation is about like coming into the body coming into the present moment and creating separation between you and what's happening in your brain because you are not your thoughts in case no one's told you that today Mm -hmm. your thoughts are something that are happening that are separate from you you're so right and so seeing that 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 space between who you are and what you're thinking only happens in the present moment and then the last option that we'll give you is reiki which we've talked about a lot and i won't bore you with the science because we have a whole episode on that but Reiki has been shown to be effective at flipping that switch between the survival response and the resting response, helping you come into a state of relaxation and improving your resiliency. So basically, that means that mousetrap, 
that snaps you into survival gets a little bit looser. And especially when you practice every day, you know, a couple minutes a day doing Reiki for yourself, it can start to really hone and develop your intuition and at the same time create space between you and your anxiety. So it's one of those like tools that you you can use in the moment that you're feeling anxious, but also every day to start to build a better better relationship with your anxiety, decrease that that reaction to just flip right into survival and also increase your intuition and hone your intuition in the process. So that's why it's my personal favorite, but I'm also biased. Yeah, I was going to say, we've got a little bit of bias towards Reiki due to our own <laughs> personal success. <laughs> so those are some of our favorite practices to flip that switch, decrease that anxiety. We want to decrease that anxiety for obvious reasons. That feels very obvious to say out loud. But within the context of building intuition, these practices make it easier. We talked last week about how anxiety is the loudest voice. It's always going to be the loudest voice in the room. Mm -hmm. When you can quiet that voice, that's when intuition can speak up. Yeah. Yeah. So next week, we're going to talk about what intuition might sound like. Yeah. We're going to start off with some of the clear senses. And there's actually more than you think there are. So if you read about the clear senses and you're like, those don't apply to me, I must not be psychic. I must have no intuition. I've got good news for you because what you might know about the clear senses, you might not have all the information. Yeah. I'm very excited to talk about the clear senses. We actually very recently did a class at the store about them. So it's all very fresh in my mind. I've like been chomping at the bit to talk about it. So this has come at the perfect time for me personally. I can't wait. This is like my version of a geek out. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we're going to talk about how you can identify which of your clairs is strongest and also how you can hone your intuition through that understanding. And it's my turn to do some myth busting. I can't wait. All right. We'll leave you on that cliffhanger for that one. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Demystify Magic with Molly and Madison. If you want to learn more about us, you can find all our links in the show notes. We'd love to know what you think of today's episode. So drop us a review or give us a shout out on social media. And don't forget to let us know your magical moment of the week. Okay, love you. Bye. Bye.